recent survey records that 52% of its population still attend church. Secularism in the West, which often influences or even seems to demand such negative verdicts, can be a totalitarian phenomenon. Secularism comes from a word meaning this age. It is often only interested in ephemeral, palpable, sensory things and is deeply suspicious of claims that there may be other intuitive and eternal modes of knowing and being. It frequently assumes that it is the norm from which all other beliefs, including those of the great world faiths, differ eccentrically. The tendency of this mode of knowledge has been to reduce the world to an object of technological research, stripping it bare of mystery. So the sacred canopy under which humankind, for most of its history, has sheltered, developed, and matured, has, for large numbers of people in the West, blown away, leaving them alone, commanders of their own destiny. People of other cultures, and an increasing number of Westerners, too, have strongly criticized this point of view, yet there are points in its favor— Indeed, it is to the Western Enlightenment tradition of critical scholarship, the mother of secularism, but the child of religion, that in certain respects I am indebted for the shaping of my own life and beliefs. Its emphasis upon reason, its suspicion of superstition, and its willingness to question authority, these are things many religious people dislike, but which, even if they are sometimes overstated by the uncomprehendingly irreligious, have proved profoundly beneficial to humankind. Other legacies of the Enlightenment have brought the planet to the brink of extinction. We should treat this tradition to friendly and respectful criticism, just as secularists would do well to approach religion in the same spirit. I am primarily a scholar of the relatively new discipline of religious studies. Although such intellectuals are often practicing members of a particular religion, I myself am a Methodist minister, they attempt to understand and appreciate other ways of responding to mystery. That is the perspective from where I stand. I am particularly grateful to, and deeply influenced by, the Christian tradition within which I have been nurtured and tutored. It has offered me a profound and challenging religious vision of and root through my life. Many secular readers are suspicious and dismissive of this perspective, yet it shaped the Enlightenment movement, which in turn has also deeply and sometimes eccentrically molded it. Books communicate through words. So do human beings, but there are other powerful ways of communicating. Gesture, silence, intuitive thought, and action. These are sometimes more powerful than words. Human beings create language as a vehicle for understanding in this mundane existence. Even so, it is sometimes a poor substitute for a hug or some other sign. If language is not always adequate within this sensory world, how much more so when it attempts to convey an ultimate reality beyond human construction? When we come to look at sacred writings in chapter 3, we shall see a particular illustration of the power of words, yet we must also recognize their shortcomings. 
Despite the assumptions or assertions of scriptural literalists, in practice they do not deal with holy writ as a body of timeless truths. They interpret it, often from a narrow and limited perspective that they confuse with the eternal will of God. Also, they supplement it with other means by which they can locate transcendent presence, for example, with holy places and holy people. Our thoughts and images are caught up in the web of language. Religious language creates myths, for example, the myths of polytheism and monotheism that we shall discuss in chapter 2. The word myth does not mean that these notions are untrue. Rather, it reminds us that they point to a truth or truths beyond the power of the written word to convey. Language should not be used to trap the divine, but rather to...